Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and I never get tired of saying it uh, because it's it's genuinely my favorite book. Um, I think that's a fair conceit for an author, uh, but this is the book that is the most attuned to my desires in a book. <laughs> this is the book I most wanted to write. It's a book I still enjoy reading to this day or listening uh, to the audiobook. Uh, my wife was uh, making fun of me because the audiobook is narrated by the exquisite David Radke, wonderful narrator. Uh, and I was listening to it. And we were coming to a stop. Uh, and I was, I was, by the way, I was doing research because I'm uh, finishing Banneker Bones' third adventure. Uh, so I went back and I was listening to it. And I had to stop the audiobook because we'd arrived at our destination. I was just kind of disappointed. And she's just staring at me like, you know how it ends. <laughs> if there's one book you've read more than, than any other book, you know this one. I know, but I, I, still, I still enjoy it. Um, so if you're curious about an 11-year-old biracial boy detective and his cousin Ellicott Spellworth who fly around on jetpacks and blast giant robot bees out of the Latimer City sky uh, with EMP blast rifles, the uh, first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening or watching to this, uh, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, once you're hooked on the series, check out Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and the upcoming third Banneker Bones adventure, which I'll be talking about more in 2020, uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent. Uh, I've written some uh, horror stories, such as the young adult novel, All Together Now, a Zombie Story, uh, which is about teens in crisis. I love zombies because they're just a, a wonderfully malleable metaphor for all the different maladies that can befall uh, uh, mankind um, from, you know, a plague. You've got your plague elements. You've got your element of what if society begins to collapse and fall apart to the fact that inevitably we're all going to die and we're literally seeing that that truth coming at us and uh, slow shambling form. I love zombies. If I find out that an author I admire has a zombie book, I have yet to read too many zombie stories. That's for sure. Uh, the book of theirs, I'm likely to take a peek at um, uh, before I'm done. So check out All Together Now, a zombie story. If you want to go for the extreme adult horror of, say, a Stephen King, um, check out my five-volume horror series, The Book of David. Uh, if you're curious about that, it's about an atheist that buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. So it is as crazy as it sounds, and it just gets crazier the longer you read it. I pitch this book on a regular basis, and I can't even tell you about what happens in Chapter 4 and Chapter 5. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. It is just nuts. So check out The Book of David. If you're curious about that one, The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent, not Rob Kent is available to download for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, as always, keep up with what's going on with the show at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, next Saturday, I'm going to be here chatting with somebody fascinating. Uh, depending on when we record shows, that will depend on who that person's going to be. But if you check with uh, middlegradeninja.com, you're going to see who I'm talking with what conversations are scheduled, know who's coming up on the show. You can also read interviews with uh, hundreds of uh, literary agents, editors, publishing professionals, and my favorite people in the world, authors. Um, so you can check all of those folks out as well. Uh, today, I couldn't be more excited. I am sitting down with Jennifer Boyd Copeland, uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, her new book, Crushing the Red Flowers. Did I say that right? Is it Copeland or Kaplan? Kaplan. Kaplan. Sorry about that, Jennifer. Jennifer, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for uh, clearing the time. This is launch week. 
uh, as we're talking. So I know you've got to be running around just like a like a a writer who just launched a book. <laughs> exactly. How is your launch week going? So far, so good. We launched just a couple of days ago on Tuesday, and I have my launch party coming uh, this Saturday. Oh, very exciting. Where is your launch party going to be held? In Madison, New Jersey, at the Short Stories Bookstore. Three o'clock. And what, uh, what sort of exciting events do you have planned for the party? Well, we have a number of giveaways. We'll have an author Q&A. Um, of course, some delicious German-themed foods. Uh, and a book signing. Fantastic. And of course, uh, I assume everyone that's ever known or loved you will be there and saying, oh, Jennifer, we're so proud of you. This is such a momentous occasion. It is wonderful uh, to have your friends and family support you as a debut novelist. I went to a launch party. Uh, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say her name. She won't mind. Uh, Annie Sullivan, previous guest. If you haven't listened to her episode, esteemed audience, go back and check it out. It's a wonderful episode. Uh, I went to her launch party for Tiger Queen. And it was bigger than a lot of the weddings I've been to. <laughs> it was <Wow>. just tremendous. <laughs> Fantastic. So since I'm talking to you here at, at, at Launch Week, um, what for all the authors out there who yearn to be where you are now at the launch of their book, um, what, uh, what all has gone into planning this week and what all do you have before you? Well, there's been quite a lot of planning. There's... Um, between the time uh, an author gets his or her contract and release, uh, the amount of stuff going on, it could be a full-time job. And, can, you know, the marketing, um, the PR, the organization of it all really uh, takes a lot of time. So quite a lot of stuff has, has gone on and will continue to go on. Sure. That'll keep you busy. And then eventually, I suppose, you might want to sit down and, and get back to writing at some point. Oh, yeah, my happy place. Yes. <laughs> During the launch of a book, is that even a consideration? I'm going to write this week or do you say, nope, this week I'm going to launch and then maybe I'll get back to it next week? You know, I, I consciously and unconsciously have kept writing um, truly is my happy place. Uh, when I have something wonderful going on in my life, how do I celebrate? I, I take an hour and I write. If I have something sad going on in my life, I take an hour and I write and it makes me feel better. So um, I view writing as a treat almost. So yes. So during um, my my actual launch day, which was two days ago, I treated myself. It was my celebratory, you know, figurative glass of champagne. I treated myself, even though I was super busy and had plenty of things to do. I wanted to take the time and just celebrate. And I, I wrote and it made me happy. Anything in particular, just something that uh, spoke to you at that moment that I want to write this just for my own my own pleasure? Well, I'm always puttering around with a few novel ideas. So if I'm uh, talking to you and it's not launch week, what does your usual writing schedule look like? So I, in an ideal world, and of course this is difficult, um, I do have three children, school-aged children. It, you know, I have a family. Um, I do a, a lot of volunteer work in my town, but what I love would love to carve out is two hours a day of writing. Um, and perhaps uh, now with the book coming out, um, one hour a day of marketing activities. That would be ideal if I could maintain that schedule every day, five days a week. So one hour, um, 
uh, I know can be extremely useful for somebody that's that's on it, that's disciplined, that comes comes in and like we're doing this. Yeah. Uh, for me, an hour is I I've stared off and written maybe thirty to forty minutes of that hour. Um, oh. How do you maximize that hour if you've only if you're only going to get one in for the day? For a marketing for marketing activities. Oh well, for both. Okay, so for writing, I do not write at home. I go to coffee shops and I unplug my phone, I unplug my internet, um, and just being out of the house really allows me to focus. The background noise is good for me. Um, I can really, you know, get into the swing of things. Um, for the marketing activities, I have to sit at my desk because I have my files, I have, you know, everything that I need at my desk. So I just, I have to, that's more of a conscious and deliberate um, form of concentration. I really, I have to, you know, sometimes I'll set a timer, I'll look at the clock and I say, okay, 20 minutes for this marketing activity, no checking email, um, don't get distracted by anything else. So I, I usually assign time to it. Gotcha. Uh, do you listen to music while you write or just the ambient noise going on around you? No, no music that I can't write um, if I listen to music. It's completely distracting. Usually when I hear a song, it brings me back to a particular time and place, particular memories or, you know, ideas. And if I'm not writing within that scope, that is distracting to me. Gotcha. So when, um, we'll, we'll get back to marketing, but when do you do, I assume your research is not part of that, that hour of writing? So a good amount of research uh, went into Crushing the Red Flowers. It's a historical fiction novel. Um, and no, you're, that's a great question. And that was um, really a separate undertaking. Um, if you asked me this, you know, a few years ago before I had the book deal, I wasn't doing much, um, I, I wasn't giving much time to marketing initiatives, um, but I was giving a lot of time to research. And I can go into that now if you'd like, or. It's, it's our conversation. We can go anywhere you want. Okay, <laughs> so if you're not familiar with my book, Crushing the Red Flowers, it's an upper, upper middle grade historical novel. And it um, is really about two ordinary boys in 1938 Germany dealing with the extraordinary circumstances of Kristallnacht. I use two main characters, a German Jewish boy named Emil and a German boy named Friedrich, who's in the Hitler Youth. Um, actually, the Hitler Jungfuck, which is the younger version of the Hitler Youth. And I wrote this book because my heritage is half German and half German Jewish. So I grew up with a lot of um, fascinating stories about this time period. All of my family, um, up until 1938, both sides of my family were in Germany. So they lived through this time. Um, so I think my novel really started from just a basic, um, you know, hearing hearing lots of these rich wonderful nuanced stories from my family that was the springboard of my research once i decided to actually commit and write the novel i conducted formal interviews i was fortunate enough at the time i still had four members of my family who were um still with us who lived through this time period um so that was a springboard and then beyond that um even just at a basic level i just started to read everything i wrote um I read uh, adult fiction, um, juvenile fiction about this time period, academic articles, nonfiction. Um, I watched uh, a lot of movies too, so I can understand um, the mood and the style. Um, and then that that laid the foundation for me. 
Um, and then pretty early on, um, I really became committed to making the book as historically accurate as possible. And so I had um, phoned Patricia Harbour Rice. She's with the Holocaust Memorial Mu Museum. And she had advised me um, on a few very specific historical questions. And she actually offered um, or connected me um, with Myrna Goldenberg with Montgomery College, who was able to you know, read the manuscript and, and really vet it for historical accuracy. So, but beyond that, I had many questions. Um, I'll try not to give away any spoilers, but so for instance, um, a lot of the novel takes place around a river, the Lina River um, running through Hanover. And I needed to know what kind of fish species were in that river. I needed to confirm the fish species. So, you know, I went off and, and I, you know, did my research into that. Um, early on in the scene, I wanted to describe uh, the wallpaper in one of the characters' rooms. Um, I had no idea what the wallpaper looked like. I asked my family. They couldn't remember what their wallpaper looked like. So I hopped on the train to New York and I went to the New York Public Library picture collection, and I just browsed through everything I could about uh, that time period in Germany, just to get an understanding of what kind of wallpaper uh, was common in houses at that time. So every little um, research question I had sent me on a tangent, and it, it was it was a good amount of time. <laughs> so devil's advocate question uh, that um, that I'm asking because I, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified to hear myself ask it, but I know Folks listening would be might be thinking it. Um, <laughs> if you're writing your novel, the story is gripping. You've got the 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 broad strokes all correct. Everything lines up with history. But you're wrong about the fish in the river, or you're wrong about the wallpaper. Uh, does that create uh, an irreconcilable issue for the reader? Is the novel that much poorer, or is it just simply that satisfaction that you know you know the fish were were the wrong kind of of, of fish? Okay, that's a bigger question. I can speak for my novel, but that's quite a broad question that people... No, I want you to publishing... speak for all authors everywhere of all time. <laughs> no, just for, you, just for crushing the red flowers. So for me, you know, I felt as though I was covering a very, very important topic. Kristallnacht really hasn't been covered that much uh, in middle grade literature, and I wanted to get it right. I really wanted to get it right for the children. I didn't want to give them something not factually accurate. So I did the best I could. Hopefully, you know, hopefully I accomplish this goal. You know, I think if you're presenting um, a historical novel to children and you present it as accurate, you should go the extra mile. Um, if you present it as, you know, this is sort of tongue in cheek or there may be some wiggle room, you know, I, I think that's fine as well. But I, I do think, you know, as tempting as it is, you know, as, an, as a writer, you become exhausted at times. You become exhausted emotionally uh, with your craft, with the topic. And, you know, you want everything to be wonderful and you want to be done. And it's tempting, I can imagine, to not want to take that extra step and spend the entire day at the New York Public Library picture collection looking for pictures of wallpaper. But for me, this is just something important. And if I, you know, if I, if I find it important, I, I won't cut corners. Excellent. That is, uh, I don't know what, what they call that, a gauntlet, where uh, somebody asks you a question that has a little bit of a trap in there. <laughs> you sailed right through it. I 100% believe your, your enthusiasm. So how, uh, how 
long did this novel take you to write? When did I mean, we're talking launch week. How long ago did you officially say, OK, I think I'm going to write a novel about this history? OK, so it took a long time, even by publishing standards. It took a long time. And for me, it was OK. I had started. Um, I don't have a traditional background as a writer, and I sort of fell into writing uh, when my kids were little, maybe around 2008, 2009. And I puttered around a little bit with picture book writing, and it was the first time I even considered writing fiction, and it was such a wonderful experience. I wrote a few books. They were god-awful. <laughs> I wrote a few, but it was just so fulfilling, and it was just such a wonderful creative outlet. Um, and I was, you know, getting so much insp inspiration from my own children um, that I started to attend conferences. I eventually hooked up with a critique group. You know, I did want to improve my craft because it gave me gave me and still gives me so much joy. So, you know, I puttered around with picture books for a couple of years um, and that was wonderful. And then, you know, it just was a natural progression for me to think about my own family history and all the stories that were told around me and to want to sort of aggregate this all and write a novel. Um, so probably I thought of the idea around 2009 and I probably I really committed to it around 2010. And it wasn't until 2015 that I started subbing out to agents. So it took five years, which was okay. Um, in that time, I taught myself how to write a novel. You know, as, as I just mentioned, my only background was uh, with picture books. Um, and that was okay. I would, you know, take time out for conferences and I would read how to books and I would, you know, read, um, watch craft videos. Um, there is a huge emotional element when you write about a difficult uh, emotional topic, and that's compounded if it's your own family. So, you know, I would conduct interviews with my family and I could tell, you know, sometimes uh, members would get visibly upset. Um, and then later, as I stewed on the information and tried to make sense of it, you know, it's upsetting for me. So I would have to step back sometimes and take emotional breaks and then I, you know, could return to it um, you know, with a with a fresh set of eyes. So it took a while, but it was all I was comfortable with the journey because, you know, I didn't want to cut corners with my research. I didn't want to cut corners with craft. Um, I knew I was learning um, the business of writing as I was writing it. So, you know, I hope future novels won't take me five years. I don't think they will, <laughs> but it's OK. And it was enjoyable the amount of time that I spent on this one. Lots of uh, lots of questions to unpack there. Uh, let's start with these interviews. When you go in to interview a family member, yeah, um, or anybody, are you sitting down and putting like a tape recorder uh, between you? Are you putting up a camera? Or are you just taking notes? How, what's uh, your approach? Okay, so I had at, when I first started, I had two family members in this country, and I didn't use a tape recorder. Um, I had a wealth of knowledge just from growing up with these two family um, members. They are my paternal, uh, sorry, my maternal grandparents, um, and I um, grew up with them. So I already had a good solid basis of information um, going into the start of the writing process. Um, so no, I, I don't, I didn't use a tape recorder. I took notes and then I verified and validated the information that they told me. Um, both of my grandparents actually um, in the 90s were interviewed for the Shell Foundation, um, which documents Holocaust survivors. And so just the basics of, you know, their, some of their important memories, you know, where they lived, um, you know, information about professions that was already documented in video form, not by me, but, you know, 10 years before me. 
Um, the other two members of my family um, are my paternal, on my paternal side, my uh, aunt and uncle who don't speak a lick of English. And they um, were in Germany at the time. So what I would do when I um, would see them, I, I'm able to communicate a little bit. My German language skills aren't so great nowadays. Um, but how I really got most of the information, I would type out my questions and I would give it to them. Um, and they love talking about history. Um, there, I think, you know, my uncle in particular, you know, he just he just enjoys talking about his own experiences. He enjoys, you know, thinking about history. And so he would um, type out his answers. And then my sister, who has much better German language skills than I do, would help me translate it. So I assume she's uh, thanked profusely in the acknowledgments. Uh, and she she'll, is, be at the, yes. she'll be at the launch party <laughs> and you can hold up her hand and say, thank God. Oh, my wonderful <laughs> sister, Jessica Meyer. She's amazing. Uh, and so, OK, so you were supplying written questions and then they were recording themselves to get back to you or talking to you in person for, for the German uh, interviews. They would write it out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then maybe I'd follow up with a, you know, when I would see them, I'd follow up with a question or two in person. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and then over five years, how long did it take you to get to a first draft? Because I assume first draft is just a starting place. Um, oh, my. Um, you know, that it was just such a fluid experience over those five years. Um, I, I can't recall. I can't recall exactly when that happened. But by 2015, I was subbing out to agents. Gotcha. Uh, and so when um, did you always uh, envision this as a middle grade novel or did you ever think maybe I could take an adult's perspective on this or was it was it always was did you have a clear understanding of what your plot would be from the start? That's a great question. Um, I did some research and um, there are some wonderful juvenile fiction um, books about the period the majority of them cover the war years. There's just, there wasn't that much available that covered the pre-war years, and especially 1938, and especially Kristallnacht, which was just so important. Um, it's such an important year. You know, you stand in 1938 and you can look back and you kind of see how things built up to then, and then you look forward and you see what will come next. Um, so, you know, I think it was probably a combination how I came to this. Number one, there was just, I felt a need for it. Number two, um, I wanted to do middle grade and not keeping the story confined to Kristallnacht in 1938 seemed appropriate for that age group. Again, there's some wonderful books that exist that cover the later years. Um, they can be a little intense um, for the younger children. So the other thing I wanted to do was um, they're, they're growing up, I often received questions like, you know, I hear questions like, oh, you know, how, how could this have happened? Why didn't your family do this? Why didn't your family do that? And there's just so much, there's temptation to categorize and compartmentalize the whole era and say, okay, these, this entire race of people is bad. These, this entire race of people are victims. And there's a million different perspectives and there's a lot of um, nuanced information leading up to that and I wanted to capture it and I wanted to humanize um, that whole experience. 
Um, the also, you know, I also think that I wanted to focus on middle grade, probably because of the age of my own family members were roughly tweens and teens during that period. So I had probably, you know, as I'm thinking of 1938, and I'm thinking of my grandmother hiding in the woods during Kristallnacht, she, you know, I know I, she was um, about 12 at that time. So I think I had just had an image of that age group during that time already in my head. Gotcha. So that was always going to be that was that was I gotcha. Um, so well, follow up question to that then. Uh, when you're composing a fictional narrative, because this isn't you know this isn't a, a biography, um, how do you weigh the need to um, tell your family's story, tell what's important to you personally? Yeah. Uh, how do you balance that against creating a fictional narrative that's 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 going to be larger and going to explore the themes that you want to explore? That's, again, a great question. And I think along the way, I was fortunate. Um, I was able to ask my fa my relatives, you know, and I made it really clear this isn't going to be, you know, a biography about anybody. This isn't going to be nonfiction fiction. This is fictionalized. And, you know, I would tell them what kind of... Um, plot turns it was taking. I even helped them. At one point, I was stuck on a plot point. I even asked them, well, what do you suggest? And they got into, you know, a create. they got really into having a creative session with me. And they were just so, so, so supportive. So I think just a lot of interaction throughout the entire process with my family members, you know, gave me confidence. Everybody was excited. Everybody was comfortable with the direction that I was taking. Gotcha. So you made sure they were on board. And so there's not going to be a moment at the launch party where they said, you didn't understand anything we said. This is terrible. Oh, my goodness. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and something I um, uh, something I try not to do uh, and fail at miserably on a regular basis, as regular esteemed audience members can, uh, can attest to, is I try to uh, avoid politics. Uh, one, because they move so fast. We talk about it this week. By the time people listen to this. Uh, you know, just because uh, an episode goes live doesn't mean people listen to it right away. People are still discovering previous episodes as as we're recording this one. Um, so I try to avoid politics, one, because I want people to have a respite from what's going on, uh, the bombardment of, of politics everywhere else. Uh, and two, just because the, the scandals move so fast that if we're talking about this, by the time they're listening to it, there's probably this, this is five or six scandals ago. Um, but um, we have seen the rise of a racist demagogue in the United States. Um, it's been a popular theme that if you're wondering what would you have done uh, during the rise of Nazism, you're doing it right now um, with uh, with the state of the Republican Party. Uh, so that's, that's about as political as I could possibly get. I'll just put that out there. Does that, did that inform... Um, you're shaping in this novel. Obviously, it's it's five years. Uh, what was five years to write, and then another four years before we're here at launch, right? Do I have the timeline on that, right? Uh, something like that. So it would have been relatively earlier for the writing, but has that informed the edits, the revisions, the how how has I, I assume that that has to inform this a little bit, just the 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 parallels between the history we're living in right now and the parallels of a 1938 Germany. Or am I way wildly off base? It happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, even even before um, 2016, I saw parallels. And going back to my comment previously about growing up, I was just constantly asked questions 
um, rooted in um, ignorance. You know, how could this have happened? I don't understand it. All Germans are evil. All Jewish people are victims, that kind of narrative. And I think it's it's easy. It, it makes you feel better drawing a line and separating yourself from that time period because it was so horrific. Um, and point your finger and say, no, no, that could never happen. You know, there was a reason for that. It's so far out. It's so, it's so long ago, it could just never happen. And growing up, I grew up with that mentality. And it's, you know, if you, if you just looked around, even before recently years, you could see things bubbling up that had um, disturbing parallels to early 1930s Germany. I think, you know, as I was doing research for the book, I didn't just confine it to 1938. I looked, you know, all the way back, you know, the, um, throughout the rise of Nazism. And one fascinating bit of research I found was um, when Adolf Hitler, um, some of his campaigning speeches were caught on video. And it was fascinating. I don't know what I was expecting, but it was it was not that. Um, most of 98% of um, his um, campaign promises were rebuilding Germany because as you know, it was they were economically devastated, which you know really, help lead to the rise of Hitler. Um, so, you know, he said, I'm going to rebuild things. I'm going to rebuild things. Um, you know, we've had enough. Um, you know, we're the victims. All this, you know, this narrative and just people were so desperate. At the very end, um, I forgot who came on, but it wasn't Hitler. It was um, it was somebody else. And at the very end, it was a footnote about Jewish people and about how, like, we've had enough. We will no longer be bullied by the Jewish people. And it was fascinating to see it framed in in 1930s, you know, when people really, or the early 1930s, when people were really um, starving and and ripe for that kind of language. So I think that if you want to make parallels between now and World War II, I don't know if it's fair to look at 1938 and above. I think it would be telling to look at the early 30s, um, and especially those campaign speeches were. It, it was it was a little unnerving. So how uh, how do you keep this when you're writing about um, well, when you're writing about uh, history that's a, a little bit darker, but you're obviously still uh, when you're done writing for the day, you're still here in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can you can turn on your your Disney Plus or Hulu, whatever. Um, when, uh, how do you keep that separate or can you, can you keep from ruining your entire day because you've listened to research her from Shoah? Uh, and, and, and how do you overcome that? Because for me personally, when I go back and I look at some of those things, it's like, my God, all of humanity is terrible. Why, what's the point in anything? Uh, and then of course I have to put that aside. So how do you keep that separate and, and, and keep yourself healthy while, while uh, immersing yourself in that? Yeah, you know, that goes back to some of the emotional breaks that I needed to take. It did get a little heavy at times. Um, particular, it's not just a time period. It was, you know, my family, the people who I'm interviewing, my grandparents had to go through this firsthand. You know, it was just, you know, my aunt and uncle, they're, um, they were on the German side, um, but their experience throughout the war, it was, it was really, there's a lot of pain in those experiences as, as well. So I did need to step back and take emotional breaks. You know, eventually I, I come, I think I came back to it. The glue that, that bound it all together was just the wild support of my family. They wanted me to, you know, finish this project. They cheered me on. They were excited about it. They believed in what I was doing. So that was, that was probably, you know, the anchor 
and all of it. So the uh, launch will be a celebration of you and your family and everybody uh, that came together and, and involved yeah. to help you get the project. That's how I see it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Outstanding. Uh, and then, uh, oh, how do I follow that up with a question that won't seem trite? <laughs> oh. um, well, let me uh, let me ask you this: What response? Well, you know, we've kind of we've, we've talked about. It. I was going to ask you about uh, your responsibility to history, but I think we've. We've pretty well covered that. Certainly your responsibility to fish and wallpaper. Uh, we, we, we've covered a living detail. Uh, but you said that uh, you hope that this novel gives young people the courage to question. Uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, and what specifically would you like them to question? Well, uh, I'm not going to answer that. So I do. I, I don't like to be heavy handed in my writing. Um, you know, if you ask a thousand people their opinion on a topic, you'll get a thousand different answers and probably they all have a thread of truth. So I think if I just spat out my own personal opinion, it would be difficult for children to internalize that and make sense of it. I think if I'm, I'm hoping middle grade readers will read the story, um, see injustices, um, understand the complications and then reflect on their own lives. You know, how does this link back to their own lives? Um, do they see parallels? And, you know, hopefully be able to internalize everything and come to their own decisions. So what is the, uh, what tips do you have? I was going to say, what's the secret, but that's too, that's, that's, that's too much. Let's say, <laughs> what tips do you have uh, about writing and uh, guiding uh, young people toward having the types of thoughts that you you want them to have without being heavy handed, without spoon feeding them, what's your, the conclusions you're hoping they'll come to? I mean, I try to stay away from answering specific questions. Um, in a way, 1938 lent itself to that, right? Because, well, you know, I'm not going to answer that because that would give away spoilers to the book. <laughs> Fair enough. But, you know, you have to understand at the time, um, the characters had no idea what was coming. They really didn't. Nobody could possibly imagine in 1938 it would jump from this to that. And the year definitely saw a lot of drastic changes, but still the slope, you know, I, I would never in a million years have guessed what the end point would have been. So I just, I, you know, right, I, I wrote, um, uh, or I partnered in writing um, a really good educational guide uh, which is included at the end of the book, a discussion guide. And in addition, on my website, you can download um, a teacher's guide. It's um, a multi-page teacher's guide tied to the core curriculum. And we, you know, inserted um, many questions um, that would hopefully help middle grade reader readers internalize the content and link it back to their everyday lives. Gotcha. And so... Uh, that's, uh, that's something that can be downloaded by all teachers that want to teach us in their yeah. in their classes. Um, and um, when you do something like that, do you get your your editor and your publisher involved? Or are you doing that on your own? And they say, yeah, okay, that's good. <laughs> What's well, the process for me, it was the latter. That? I don't know how. It, I guess every publishing house is probably different. But for me, it was just I developed this, and you know, my awesome publisher said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And so, you know, that was that. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Uh, and then um, let's talk a little bit about the process that uh, brought this book out, um, because uh, it's, it's something that uh, struck me as, uh, oh, I, what's the word, just interesting, uh, when I was reading your bio initially, 
like award-winning children's author's debut novel. Like, how does that work? (laughs) Well, there are many writing contests for unpublished novelists. So I submitted to a bunch and I was very fortunate that this was this was recognized. Now I have to tell you, um, I, <laughs> I guess most people will agree with this, but you know, in, nine, in 2015, when I started subbing it out to agents, the reaction I got was, oh, this is a saturated area. There's no more room, you know, another Holocaust book. And on, in some regards, sure, you know, I, it is crowded and there have been a million stories, but I honestly, I insisted, well, you know, I, there's has been very few stories told over Kristallnacht um, that are confined to 1938. And from what I know, there's been no stories told over Kristallnacht with two alternating perspectives and, you know, points of view. And certainly none told by you (laughs) prior to this. Yeah. So you get involved in contests. You were recognized in one of the six different literary contests uh, before publication. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I approached agents and I I had this, you know, I received this kind of um, um, concern, uh, which is not unfair. And then so simultaneously, as I was submitting to agents, I also started submitting to contests and I found them very helpful. Um, Actually, I submitted to one even before I was uh, the novel was completed, the SCBWI work in process grant um, and I submitted to the multicultural category in 2012 and mind you this grant has transformed um, a lot over you know the years um, now the, the rules are a little bit different um, and the categories are a little bit different but at the time there was a multicultural category and I received the letter of merit um, from that which is fantastic and obviously SCBWI work and process grant that name has a lot of weight I think in the industry with agents and editors so that caught the attention and then another wonderful um, award I submitted to that was really helpful uh, from a few different angles uh, was Publishers Weekly uh, Book Life Prize in Fiction and that is for either self-published or unpublished manuscripts and I submitted to the middle grade category and the novel won that category. Um, so it was um, Tehran Matharu uh, submitted a wonderful blurb um, as part of my prize, uh, I received, you know, fantastic publicity and I was able to use that and market myself to editors and agents. And even now I'm, you know, able to use it and market myself to the public. Did you, um, so did you have a, an agent uh, at that time or were you still on the query around while submitting to the contest simultaneously? I did not have an agent and I do not have an agent. I have never actually signed with an agent. So agents, I had some wonderful dialogues with a few of them, but it just ultimately never clicked. Um, And then maybe around 2018, 2017, I can't remember the exact date, I started submitting directly to publishers. And then uh, at the end of 2018, um, I received, you know, an email of interest from uh, IG Publishing, which is where the novel's being published. Gotcha. Um, So when you, I mean, when you come to them and you say, hey, I've, I've already been recognized in six literary contests, I've got the work in progress grant from the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Is it just a question of, so go ahead and get your contract, read the book if you have time. Let's do this, right? (laughs) Well, (laughs) not quite. (laughs) Um, But then they they come back and they, and then, so from the time you find the publisher, how long does it take from then until now here we are at launch date? 
Um, so I think that's one of the advantages of working with a small press. You know, they're a traditional house and they're an award-winning house, which really attracted me to them. Um, but yeah, so the, the turnaround time was quite quick. I think I received my offer, um, end of 2018. It was basically by the time the contract was signed, maybe 11 months until my release. And that's amazing. Yeah, that's, uh, writers right now who are listening are pulling their hair out. Like what? That's possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, there, there's, I'm sure pros and cons of, you know, working any place. And this is, you know, an absolute pro for me is just time to market. I've got a friend that we celebrated the big sale of her book. Well, one of my critique partners that we all helped edit the book and we, we celebrated the sale three years ago and I can't wait to get my hands on a copy next year. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> So 11 months is, oh, that's a blessing. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, well, let's uh, talk now that the, the book is out. It's launch time. You've got a degree from the Wharton School of Business and Marketing. I do. Um, and I know I'm talking to you here at, at, at book one. Uh, so I'll have to circle back and talk to you at book five. Uh, and, and, and see how uh, your thoughts on how to market a book have, have uh, progressed. But what, if you don't mind sharing, what uh, are some of the strategies you're employing? What's, what's, what's the marketing plan of attack? Wow, that's a big lead in. <laughs> so I am a debut novelist. I do have an undergraduate degree in marketing from the Wharton School of Business. Um, there's a lot to learn as a debut novelist that you don't necessarily pick up before you sign your contract. Um, you know, basics from, you know, developing a website and developing a media kit, which sounds pretty basic, but, you know, all of a sudden you sign the contract, this needs to be done ASAP. So I have spent a lot of time just sort of catching up, I feel like, to the basic level. Um, going forward, I am really looking forward to um, finding uh, different pathways to people interested um, in my book. And that could even be adults in World War II blogs who are interested in World War II fiction. Um, so apparently, I, I believe it's about eight states in the United States where it's mandatory to teach the Holocaust um, in the public schools. So I would like to, you know, market myself, my, myself to educators in this capacity. Um, I would like to identify um, Holocaust centers around the country and introduce myself and, um, you know, um, you know, perhaps they could sell my book in the Holocaust Center if they do have a shop. So there's a number of um, areas that I'd like to pursue. So what's going on with the other 44 states where this isn't mandatory? I know. <laughs> yeah, right. Get on it. <laughs> Come on, states. <laughs> Let's start. Uh, let's not ignore history. So, okay. So how uh, are you going about the process of, of approaching them um, to introduce yourself as, hey, I'm somebody that could be made available to you. Uh, how do you make the introduction? So for the Holocaust centers, this is something I'm in the process of right now. There are lists of Holocaust centers um, around the United States. So I have acquired my list. Um, and then the step is it's a little tedious. Um, you, you need to go, what I do is, you know, I'll go through each and every one and I'll look on the website. I'll see if they have recommended reading lists. I'll see if they have a store. If they don't even have any of that, you know, I'll send an email just to introduce myself and like thank them and say, you know, this is what I'm doing. Just FYI, you know, the book exists. I exist. If they do have recommended reading lists, you know, I'll say, please consider, you know, putting my book on the recommended reading list. And if they have a store, I'll, you know, offer an, an e-arc. And then I know you're working with a publicist. 
because you're you're working with uh, Rebecca Gross, whose interview is available now at middlegradeninja.com. Mm. Um, what has uh, reaching out and involving a publicist done for you beyond what you can do for yourself? Okay, so as a debut novelist, I found it extremely valuable. Um, once again, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what the expectations of the industry um, are. You know, when do reviews come out? Is this good? Is this bad? I didn't know. So Rebecca was great at um, handholding <laughs> and sort of guiding me. You know, you really need to have a presence on library thing. You really need to, you know, have a um, footer in your in all the emails going out. You really need to get an author Facebook page. Just even helping guiding me through the basics of what I absolutely needed to do was very valuable to me. Um, she advised me, you know, what kind of giveaways, you know, would be good for me to pursue. She, of course, has, you know, her list of media contacts and reviewers that she, you know, pursued on my behalf. I, you know, I didn't have the knowledge. There's a million bloggers out there. Some are excellent. Thank you very kindly. <laughs> you know, and so, so, some are also good, but they're small. So, you know, as a debut novelist, you don't know, you don't know what the universe is. So it's nice. It was very nice to have her to navigate um, through that universe and tell me where to focus my time. Gotcha. Yeah. That's one of the frustrating things I know about marketing. That, that old adage is uh, only half of marketing works. Unfortunately, nobody knows which half. <laughs> so you got to try a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, heck, I, I do the podcast and the blog. I'm forever talking about books. And I don't know what the, I couldn't tell you what the exact effect is on sales as a result of doing it. But I assume it's all tremendous. <laughs> I assume it's, it, it, it makes all the difference. Um, so going forward, now that uh, the book is here, uh, and you're going to continue to be marketing, I assume, yes. uh, forever for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, but at what point is it time to pull back a little bit from focusing on, on putting this project out there and, and start to focus on the next project? I mean, I, I think any writer should be writing. Um, so that said, sure, I have other projects. Um, I just finished a second novel, not a historical novel. This one is a sci-fi no novel. And I'm just beginning to sub it out to agents. Um, once that's in the works, I have an idea for a new novel, which is just, you know, in the beginning phases of being storyboarded. But um, I don't think I will ever lose interest in trying to make my historical novel succeed. It's my fam, it's my baby. It's you know my debut novel. It's my family heritage, and I truly I find it an important subject matter for for children to understand. So when you step aside from a project that's this is so deeply personal yeah. uh, and and so involved, when you write something uh, like a science fiction novel, yeah, um, does that is it harder going forward because you don't have the same personal connection except the new connection you're creating? Or is it such a relief to be like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm free of all this actual factual stuff. Now I just need to understand the science that makes my science fiction novel work. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it, that is such a fantastic question. And I think my choice, um, it's, it's um, shaping into a funny science fiction middle grade novel. And I think um, part of that decision was informed by I needed an emotional break. I did not want to jump into another heavy topic, contemporary or historical. So I kept it, you know, light-ish. Um, and I also needed a break from the extensive research. That's not to say science fiction is without its research, but it's a different kind of research um, than, you know, spending the day at the New York picture collection <laughs> library looking at wallpaper, right? It's, it's just not the same kind of framework. 
No, there's no such thing as a book where you don't have to do research. I, right. I joke that uh, I have a, a plausible working theory about how you could create alligator people. I have given this a lot of thought. <laughs> huh. I look forward to reading about that. <laughs> Um, I, I, I've got their, their society all mapped out in my head. I, I know what's going on with them. You're not going to read all of it on the page because you don't need all of it. But I, I, by God, I did the research. I have, I have thoughts. Uh, if alligator people existed, I, I've, I've got some theories on, on how they'd be. Um, so with them, but, um, do you have uh, a, a plan for yourself, a vision for yourself of who Jennifer Voigt Kaplan, author, is, is going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Um, or are you just kind of playing it by year that this sounds like a fun project for now and oh, this one might be good? How, how are you planning? How are you mapping that out? Well, I guess a little bit of everything. I do. Um, I like children's literature at this point, and I can't imagine in the near future stepping away from that. I still write picture books um, and I love writing novels. You know, I have, I have a, as I just mentioned, I'm just wrapping up one science fiction middle grade novel and I have an idea for a new middle grade novel. Um, maybe as my kids get a little older, I wonder if I'll have more of an interest in writing YA just because I'll be closer to it. Maybe, maybe not. I think middle grade, um, there's something about picture books and middle grade, which I find very, very special especially the middle grade years, it's really when human beings are becoming the people of their, you know, becoming people, becoming, um, defining their ethics, becoming who they will be in the future. And I find that just very special. So do you foresee yourself being uh, predominantly middle grade and young adult focused going forward? Or do you have some idea in the back of your mind for eventually, once I've lowered their defenses and they've come to trust me as a middle grade <laughs> person, that's when I hit them with the adult whore. That's funny. <laughs> I wonder, I don't know how transferable, you know, if I um, become a prolific middle grade author, I don't know how transferable those skills would be to the, you know, an adult fiction audience. I hear it's, you know, not quite so easy. And I do, I have plenty of stories that are not children's stories. So I might, if I do want to write something adult one day, it would probably be in the form of a short story to start. Um, but I can't see myself writing an adult novel anytime soon. Mira Bartok, uh, previous guest, a few episodes back, esteemed audience, said something uh, that I that I really uh, have, have, have been thinking about since. Uh, and that was that every novel you write trains you how to write that novel. So you haven't learned how to write novels. You've learned how to write that novel. Now, next novel, you need to learn how to write this novel. That's fair. I th I'd agree with that. I just like that idea that you could, you know, you could do anything. You just might have to really stretch. <laughs> but you're going to have to do that anyway, even if you uh, write nothing but additional middle grade science fiction books forever. <laughs> right, right. I don't know if you've got like uh, I, I one of, I, I don't know, I think I've talked about this before. And one of my bucket list items is to eventually have written something in every genre, just to yeah. try it out, whether I publish it or not. Like I've got an unpublished western that the oh. world is better better off not reading at this point. But I know I wrote it. I had the fun of doing it. That's fun. <laughs> oh, it, okay. It goes back to seeking joy. <laughs> if it makes you happy, that's wonderful. That's what that's what it's about. Check that one off, and maybe one of these days under a, a, an actual secret pen name, I'll write a romance. I think that might be a fun thing to do as well. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and then I don't, we'll, uh, we'll get them all. Maybe I'll do a memoir. It'll be fun. <laughs> all right, then. Uh, and I did want to ask you a little bit about your author website, because I, you know, I spend a lot of time going to author websites, uh, and I thought yours 
uh, was extremely well put together. You've got information. You've got downloadable you. information about the, the book, information about you. Um, how much time did you spend on that? And first of all, what is your website so people can check it out while they're listening to us? Okay, www.jenniferbk, that's B as in Voight, K as in Kaplan, dot com. Jenniferbk.com. Jenniferbk.com. So when did you, you started that after you got the contract? Did I hear that right? Or had you started it before? Well, I did have um, a skeleton of one put up before the contract. Um, I went, uh, there's some amazing website builders available nowadays that are easy and look great. And so quite a few years ago, I went to Wix, um, just found a template, just had something up there, you know, the name of the book, um, my, the words that it earned and a bio, because I wanted to, you know, as I was um, submitting to agents, I wanted to point them somewhere if they wanted more information about me. But it was not well thought out. It was just sort of the skeleton of something. Uh, once I received the contract, um, I decided to really commit to building a proper website and I wanted to do it from scratch. I did look into some of these website builders. I couldn't quite find anything that worked specifically for me, number one. And number two, I'm, and this is again, like something I'm teaching myself all about now, I'm interested in um, SEO, search engine optimization, especially for a topic like, you know, the Hitler youth, the Hitler Jungfolk and Kristallnacht. And, um, you know, I, I, I would like, um, as part of my website, what I did was I created educational resources about these topics in the hopes that, you know, children and people would use my website um, for education. Um, so with these website builders, it was confusing to me how SEO worked. And I just decided I, I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure. I, I didn't love the designs that I was seeing and I just wanted to build something from scratch. So I went, I searched around, looked at a million different author websites and I kind of plucked out the stuff that worked and didn't work or what I wanted to mimic, what I didn't want to mimic. And I just had this big idea. Then um, we're fortunate and we live in an age where we have all these resources available to us. I went to um, a website called Upwork.com and from scratch, I just found a developer who was in my price range and who, um, you know, had some experience uh, in what, what I needed. And I hired her um, to build the website and I, I wireframed out my vision. I submitted the vision to her and she built it for me. That's fantastic. So you've, I mean, it looks professionally designed because it is, that answers that question. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That was a, that was a big project <laughs> that took a few months to do. <laughs> and then you've got your newsletter there as well. Um, and so my, my question, cause I've got a newsletter, you can subscribe now, esteemed audience, uh, but I've always tried to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> how okay. to use it. Uh, okay. So how do you, uh, how do you anticipate making use of your newsletter? Well, I'm figuring that all out right now. So, you know, I have some social media pages. I have the um, the newsletter. You know, I start any kind of freebie or giveaway. I'd like to announce it, um, you know, through those sources. Um, any kind of new projects or new awards, you know, we can, we can, I can shoot out a blast as well. Got you. So you've got it set and hopefully you'll be building that audience that's going to follow you through the next book and the next book and, and then on forever. Yeah. <laughs> And that was uh, another thing I did as I was building my website. Um, I built it around this project, this historical fiction novel. But at the time, you know, I knew I was in the middle of writing a funny sci-fi sci story. So I needed to build a website that could accommodate future projects. And so in my head, I have a vision on how to do this. 
So how was that? I mean, it's in your head. We we're, we're not able to know or how, how, how do you do that? Where you're gonna yeah, what I plan to do. So, you know, one thing is um, I, I like the look of a slider. Um, you know, the thing when you land on a home page, it kind of um, there's a huge graphic. And after a second or two, it slides to another and another. And I've seen um, uh, some authors who have multiple books, they have their kind of their books rotating through and then you can click on what you want and will take you to a dedicated page about that specific novel. So that's roughly how I want to structure my website, um, hopefully when I have more projects to promote. Uh, which will be soon and very soon. I can feel it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, and then uh, out of curiosity, uh, you had originally majored in marketing, and I know you've got your master's as well, and you came to picture books later. Yeah. Did you, when did you, was that when you knew you wanted to be a writer? Or did you have a different uh, vision for yourself initially? Oh, my goodness. Well, this is a big conversation, so feel free to cut me off. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, you're good. We like big conversations. <laughs> I do not have a traditional background um, in writing at all. So I was born in Germany. Um, I came here when I was about to, to the U.S. Uh, when I was about three and a half or four. And I went to um, a Solomon Schechter schools, which are Hebrew schools, where I learned um, Hebrew. So when, you know, for the first three or four years of my life, I think I learned a muddle of English and German. And then I learned, you know, when, when I first came here for a number of years, I learned um, Hebrew and English. So by the time I got to second grade in the public schools of Philadelphia, I was behind in language and I struggled with language. Um, also, I spent a good amount of time with my grandparents who are German immigrants and anybody who grew up with grandparents who are any kind of Im immigrants, you know, knows English is not spoken properly in the house. So my ear for the language um, was completely off. And um, I sort of, you know, I, I found my way after a couple of years in school, but I was, um, I guess, insecure about my, you know, language ability. I was also happened to be okay at math. So they pushed me, you know, the educators kind of, you know, celebrated that and pushed me in a certain direction. So by the time I graduated from high school, I said, oh, no, you know, language, not my thing. This is what I've been told. This is what I experienced. I, you know, I'm not going to do anything in language. I have to pursue something in math. You know, that's in my head. That's, you know, how I evolved to that. Meanwhile, I remember in 11th grade, I took um, uh, an English course and there was a bunch of creative writing. There was a bunch of, you know, analysis of, of fiction and I loved it. I loved it. I almost had to say, okay, okay, stay focused, stay focused. <laughs> Don't have this love. But I remember it sort of planted a seed for me. Then I went on um, and I, you know, studied business as an undergraduate. And then um, as a young adult, my first job was a, as a management consultant with Deloitte Consulting. And I remember all this time, um, I felt a little bit of a creative void where I just liked you know, the idea of painting, even though I'm a terrible painter, or I like the idea of crafting, even though I'm not a particularly good crafter, I would receive a joy from that, a creative joy when I engaged in these kinds of activities. Um, the problem if you're a busy young professional is you don't have time, you know, to take a painting class, to get supplies, it's not as accessible. So I remember when I was 22, you know, after a long day at work, I said, you know, why don't I just start puttering around and writing stories? You know, I've never considered this or done this, but, you know, I love literature. And and I would, you know, just after work, even I would just, it was awful, just awful. But I I would do it and it would give me joy. So that planted another seed, you know, and life went on. And I had a few, you know, we had a family and I had a few different career changes. 
And it really wasn't until my children were of a young age where, you know, picture books was just a part of our daily life. And, you know, I've always had so many creative ideas. I said, you know, this is accessible. I could sit in a computer and craft a story. I can't really get out my sewing machine with my toddler, you know, running around, but this is accessible. And I would putter around on the keyboard and it would give me joy. And that's how I kind of backed into writing. It was just, it was all about joy and creative fulfillment. And have you always been a big reader? Um, probably when I um, got a little bit better of a command of English, probably in high school, it started to explode for me. But early on, um, not so much. So I'm curious with that insecurity that you had about language, do you feel that ultimately that's helped you because you've worked so hard to overcompensate for that initial insecurity uh, that you're now far beyond where you might have been if you'd always felt that, ah, I got it. I don't need to worry about language. Well, I don't, I don't know if I'll be, you know, far beyond. <laughs> you can be the judge of that. Um, but I do think it has helped me. So when I was growing up, because I struggled with language, um, I just couldn't find books that were suitable for me, not just with language, but with content. You know, I wanted a good story with big problems. Um, I feel like the options for children nowadays are fantastic. And I think I probably would have found my way, you know, had the literature that's available now been available when I was growing up. I wonder if my path would have been a little bit different. But at the time, I felt like I need a better plot. I, I need, you know, a juicy story. I need problems. I need conflicted characters. I need I need all that stuff at a level that I can digest. And so when I, you know, plot out and I write for children, I always had that in mind. I always would let, you know, I, I think about the reluctant reader as I'm writing and I write for them. How, uh, how does that inform your, your writing in specific ways uh, to, to hook those reluctant readers and get them involved? Um, I mean, it's really flushing out the plot twists and the problems and the characterization and, you know, the nuances of the character. I think it's all of that, making characters meaningful and believable and relatable and um, lots of good plot stuff in there. Gotcha. I didn't know if there was something like where you'd look at it as sentence by sentence level and say, nope, that's that's too much for my reluctant reader. Let me fix that. Or is it just more yeah. overall trying to keep those twists, trying to make sure that they're they're never putting the book down? Yeah, I guess it's a little of both. Uh, and Jennifer Boyd Kaplan, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? I don't not believe in them. <laughs> I guess I believe in the possibility of anything. Um, I suppose I have seen someone throw a saucer, but that's not a flying saucer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hoping that in uh, researching the science fiction book, maybe you had uncovered some truth that you could share with us. <laughs> oh, unfortunately not about flying saucers. My book is about alternate universes. Are yeah. alternate universes a thing, you think? I don't not believe in anything. I believe in the possibility of many things. Fair enough. Uh, and here's kind of a lazy question that I've decided to start throwing out there because it catches things that I don't know to ask otherwise. Uh, some of my favorite answers to questions are, are things I never would have in a million years been able to find on social media or in a book to ask you about. What's the most interesting thing that's happened to you? What's the most interesting thing that's happened to me? Yes, ma'am. Today? This interview? Uh, just <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's uh, so far your life to date? Well... Where should I start? I suppose um, one time I was attacked by wild turkeys. That's kind of interesting. Oh, how did that come to pass? Well, rather ordinarily. 
<laughs> I was parked at, <laughs> I was driving, so I must have been about 17 or 18. I was parked at a light. There were woods to my left. And all of a sudden, a wild, very surly turkey, I, I, there may have been two of them, popped their heads out, looked at me. I said, wow, that, that's something. And then they made an eye contact and they started running for my car, squawking or whatever sound they make you know, it, with the intent to attack. And so this is quite a few years ago. And um, nowadays you have the automatic windows where you could just, you know, press a button and they go, they shoot up rather quickly. I had a car with the old fashioned crank. So <laughs> I had maybe about four seconds before the aggressive wild turkeys got to me. And I'm just <laughs> cranking very quickly. And sure enough, they did get to me and they started pecking the heck out of my window. <laughs> if it were a horror movie, they would have reached you just as you were almost cracked up, and then there'd be a beak just poking through into the car. Exactly. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, and I'm still waiting for a good opportunity to add that into one of my books. Were you eating a turkey sandwich at the time, or had you done something to provoke them? That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was the victim. I didn't do anything in the situation. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that that's literally a question along the way. You know, never mind. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Not gonna follow up the thought. I am gonna ask you this question, and this is my uh, kind of catch-all question, and we'll we'll end on this. Um, if there was one or two or however many bits of advice you'd like that you could go back and give to younger you as you're starting your writing journey that would have made a significant difference for all the writers who are listening that might still make a difference for them, what would you go back and tell yourself? Well, I don't know if my situation is so typical for most career writers, but, um, you know, I would just say be open-minded. You know, I did have glimmers of joy um, with uh, fiction, as a, as a younger person, and I pushed them out because I wanted to stay on track for, for what I was told that I should stay on track to do. So if I were a little bit open-minded, you know, if I just broadened my horizons a little bit, you know, I wonder if it would have propelled me earlier or in a, a different way, or my skill would have developed in a different way. Uh, mind you, I have no regrets. I love how this is all played out. I love, you know, given my situation um, growing up, you know, I, I feel very good about where I am. And if I feel a deficit in, um, you know, any particular area where I want to improve my craft, there's, you know, a million wonderful uh, seminars and conferences that I could pursue. So, you know, I guess I suppose um, for anybody, you know, just as, as a younger person, you know, just don't be so narrow minded. And the reverse is true. If you, you know, see yourself only as, you know, an English person but yet you know you did have fun with that logic puzzle and you know you well, what's up with that indulge it just indulge it you know any little glimmer of interest even if it isn't compatible with your identity at the time go with it and see where it takes you makes a lot of sense to me and it's a great note to end on uh jennifer remind uh esteemed audience of your website and where they can find you online okay well my book once again it's called crushing the red flowers Available uh, wherever I, fine books are sold at this moment. Go pick up your copy, esteemed audience. Um, and my website is www.jennifervk.com. That's V as in Victor, K as in Kaplan, jennifervk.com. I have an um, Instagram author page and a Facebook author page, Jennifer Boyd Kaplan. So feel free to sign uh, on. Uh, as always, esteemed audience, find out uh, more about me, more about the show at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. Download your free copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1. 
Uh, and make sure you find your way back here next Saturday when I'll be talking with your guest. This is as good as mine, but I bet there'll be a guest that's as fantastic as Jennifer Boyd Kaplan. Jennifer, thanks again for making the time today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I'm honored. Thank you for including me. Uh, and I'm asking all of our guests to sign us off with the very ninja-like, totally justifies the name of the show sign-off phrase. Uh, and that sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Yeah. Hiya, and what have you? <laughs>